0: to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. One of the big stories of the last week was the Democrat debates. 18 million people watched 20 Democrats jockeying for position in the race for the presidency. And in fact, the mainstream media hasn't stopped talking about them. So, who am I to ignore them? Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this is the Friedman Report. So how much impact did the debates actually have? Did they change the race? Did they change anyone's mind? Did they change anything at all? And exactly what did the Democrats accomplish with their first debates? Well, some said it was a circus. Some parts of it were pretty colorful, actually, and yet, overall, it was rather boring. Most of the candidates said pretty much the same thing. One good thing that it did, though, was to introduce the nation to several largely unknown candidates, and it demonstrated how closely aligned the candidates actually are on the positions that they seem to care about. Twenty fraternal twins, all with the same genetic makeup, more or less, but they don't look alike. Now, when Kamala Harris scolded her fellow candidates on the debate stage, saying that the American people weren't interested in a food fight, was she right? Was she kidding? Americans like nothing better than a good food fight, as we can see from the popularity of things like extreme sports, horror movies, auto racing, and electronic games that simulate war and the bloody violence that goes with it. Well, anyway, the debate was rigged from the beginning. The newbies on the stage only got to say a few words because they were largely ignored by the moderators, who gave the bulk of their attention to the favorites. Most of the newbies were frankly uninspiring and ended as they began, in part because of the ineptitude of the moderators, largely unknown. Meanwhile, the front runners like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg, they had a lot to say. Warren repeated her demands for corporate consolidation and free everything, including Medicare and abortion, and she declared gun violence a national public health emergency. Biden called for income equality, free community college, a return to Obamacare, and he claimed his superior experience in getting all this done. Bernie Sanders, he declared that health care is a human right, not a privilege, and promoted the single-payer system. He also promoted free public colleges, and he said that he would pay for it by taxing large corporations. He called the president a fraud and promised to, quote, expose him for the fraud that he is, unquote. And he also promoted the clearly unethical idea of never appointing a Supreme Court justice unless he or she is firmly behind Roe v. Wade. When judges are up for consideration, they are not supposed to weigh in on specific issues, lest they show a bias even before a particular issue comes before the court. That makes sense. Cory Booker supported a Medicare for All program and for holding drug companies liable for the opioid addiction that is afflicting the country now. He wants to reinstate DACA and end the policies that separate families. And he wants a national gun buyback program. Pete Buttigieg wants free college for low- and middle-income students and to make it what he called more affordable not to go to college. I think what he was trying to say is that there should be a pathway to socially acceptable careers and jobs that do not require a college degree. And I agree with that. He also called for Medicare for all who want it, which would allow for a private health insurance track for those who prefer that. And he called for addressing climate change by making farmers part of the solution. Kirsten Gillibrand was not one of the candidates favored by the moderators, but she pushed her way into the discussions anyway by simply talking loudly and refusing to shut up until she had had her say. Now, I'm not a big fan of hers, but I think she had the right idea because the moderators clearly had their favorites to whom they gave more time, and she was not one of them. Neither was New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, who also got his arguments in in spite of the reluctance of the moderators to include him in the conversation. And then there were the others. Tulsi Gabbard surprised us all, with a very cogent and articulate presentation, supporting green policy and Medicare for all. And she said, surprisingly, because she is more former military, she said, we must get out of Afghanistan. Something with which I agree wholeheartedly, because honestly, there is nothing we can do there that's going to change the culture that has been ingrained for centuries. I think the last 18 years have proven that. Gabbard was perhaps the biggest surprise of the debates, but she got so little airtime, thanks again to the moderators, that she barely was able to get her message out. And finally, alas, candidates Bennett, Swalwell, Ryan, Hickenlooper, Inslee, Delaney, Williamson, and Yang were largely shunted to the side by the moderators. Although they did have a few opportunities to speak, they were outscreeched by the others, who had bigger names and louder voices. I would have liked to hear more from all of them, but particularly from former tech executive Andrew Yang, who brought a totally different point of view to the discussion. Williamson was unique in that she didn't have a name and she wasn't a politician, but you know she was so convincing that she had a message that Republicans are now contributing to her campaign. And then there were the Democrat debate funnies, including those from two old-timers. Do you remember when 77-year-old Joe Biden was quoted about having said that it was time to pass the torch? He said that 34 years ago, but he's still out there. And then there was 78-year-old Bernie Sanders, who proposed rotating the justices on the Supreme Court in order to get fresh blood on the highest court in the land. Well, Bernie, how about some fresh blood on the campaign trail? Why not move over and make room for the youngins in the crowd? And it is a crowd. Mm. Remember when only a few short years ago the Republicans had 17 candidates on the stage and the Democrats couldn't stop laughing or telling their bad jokes about the size of the field, remember that? They laugh themselves silly. Oops, wait a minute. This year, they're the ones with the huge field, and it's a lot larger than the Republican field was four years ago. So who's laughing now? Okay, let's think about that for a minute. Why would anyone, particularly someone with limited name recognition, want to jump into that mess of candidates with everyone trying to be the most left-wing candidate in the pack. And what is funnier than each candidate trying to be more left than the others, trying to propose programs that are more radical than the proposals made by the other candidates? Free everything for everyone, college, health care, abortion, and particularly, especially for illegal immigrants who now seem to have a higher priority than U.S. citizens. And what else? Oh yes, they want open borders so that the flow of new Democrat voters will keep them in power, more sanctuary cities and states to protect illegals so they can escape accountability for the laws that they have broken, first by crossing the border illegally, then by not showing up for their hearings, and then, for some, relief from deportation or even punishment, jail time, after actually committing serious crimes like theft and murder, and vehicular homicide. And by the way, what about the American victims? What about the American citizens who died at the hands of illegal immigrants who were protected by American sanctuary jurisdictions? What about Molly Tibbetts in Iowa, who was murdered by an illegal immigrant who stalked her, caught her, stabbed her to death while she was out running? What about Kate Steinley in California, who was shot to death by an illegal immigrant while she walked along the beach with her father? What about Sarah Root, also in Iowa, who was killed by an illegal immigrant who was street racing in a pickup truck, driving very fast and very drunk? He smashed at full speed into the back of her SUV while she was stopped, waiting at a red light. What about her? And what about the victims of MS-13? What about what about 14-year-old Ariane Funes-Diaz, for example, who was murdered in Maryland? She was beaten to death with a bat and stabbed multiple times with a machete by two teenage illegal immigrants who are members of MS-13. What about her? How is it even possible that such murders often go unpunished Because those who are supposed to uphold the law are, in fact, supporting every effort by the so-called sanctuary jurisdictions to undercut the law. They firmly refuse to cooperate with federal immigration officials. Those are the men and women whose job it is to take these offenders into custody and deport them out of the country so they'll be off our streets and American citizens will be just that much safer. This is, it seems, not a priority for the candidates and the officials on the left. In fact, these local officials are putting their own citizens at risk, sometimes at risk of their lives, in order to protect people who are in this country illegally and have committed crimes for which they were put in jail. This is like a nightmare version of Alice in Wonderland where things are not what they seem or what they are supposed to be in a sane world. And did you notice there wasn't a single Democrat on that stage either night who had anything to say about those illegal immigrants who are not the hard-working, tax-paying, honest people and loving family members that they talk about? What about the thieves, the drug smugglers, the human traffickers, the terrorists and the rapists? How do we stop them from coming into the country disguised as a hard-working father, you know, the one whose kid is rented so that he could get into the U.S.? The politicians are so eager to welcome the illegal immigrants that they are enabling the criminals and terrorists and drug smugglers and human traffickers into this country at the expense of their own citizens. That is why we have victims like Kate Steinle and Molly Tibbetts and Sarah Root and Ariane Funes-Diaz. This is politics at its worst, and we should be ashamed for our nation and for our elected officials that they have allowed this situation to happen. How is it even possible that all of these candidates who support these policies either were born into wealth that had been created by their parents and grandparents who had had the advantage of living in America where they could get rich because of the free market system that capitalism provides? Or these candidates did it themselves and brought themselves up by their bootstraps to the point where they could run for President of the United States, despite their humble beginnings. Yet every one of them, every one of them, is proposing to change the system that gave them the hope and opportunity to be on that stage. They want to change our free market economy that gave us all so much opportunity for socialism. Are they mad? It defies logic. It defies intelligence. And it's a sign of desperation that the Democrats have gone so far afield from the things that made America great. It also spells disaster for America if any one of them is elected president in 2020. And before we leave the subject of politics, I want to say a few words about someone whom I really detest. I keep vowing not to talk about her anymore more. But she keeps outdoing herself with the most smug and the stupidest remarks on situations she obviously knows little or nothing about. I joined many others to call her out about how insulting and totally offensive her claim was that we have concentration camps on our border, like the Nazis had in Europe. You can read my column on that on americaoutloud.com. The article is called Open Letter to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and it's under Ilana Friedman. It tells her what concentration camps were really like. The woman is a fool, and she has just come up with another idiotic and totally illogical mission in which she is encouraging a strike by the workers at the Wayfair Furniture Factory. She is protesting immigrant enforcement with awful, terrible stories about small children kept in cages without soap or toothpaste who are being forced to sleep on the cold, concrete floors with only blankets of aluminum foil to keep them warm. So listen to this. I, I, you know, I, it's hard even to, to believe it, but I will tell you anyway. Wayfair has been sending beds down to the internment camps so that the kids won't have to sleep on the floor. But Ocasio-Cortez, with all of her self-righteousness and completely ill-informed wisdom, and I use that word very loosely, is encouraging the strike because the company is doing business with the internment camps. She tweeted the following, quote, Wayfair workers couldn't stomach that they were making beds to cage children. That doesn't even make sense. That's what she said. They asked the company to stop. CEO said no. Tomorrow, they're walking out. This is what solidarity looks like a reminder that everyday people have real power as long as we're brave enough to use it, Really, what is important about power is how you use it. But she's out supporting people who are enraged over the fact that the kids in the internment centers are sleeping on the floor. Okay, got that. But then they're going out on strike against the very company that is providing the solution to that problem. They make the beds that will go to the centers, so that the kids won't have to sleep on the floor. So what's the problem with their doing business with the internment camps? You just can't make this stuff up. You'll be happy to know that despite her best efforts, Wafer will be honoring their contract to provide beds to the centers in spite of the strike so that the kids won't have to sleep on the floor. Bravo for them. Boo. Hiss for Ocasio-Cortez. Honestly, I think that Ocasio-Cortez hasn't got two brain cells clicking together in that carefully combed head of hers. Or maybe her ponytail is just too tight. She never saw a microphone she didn't like, and every time she grabs one, she says something so inane and so stupid that one has to wonder how she ever got elected in the first place. Okay, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back to bring you two interesting stories about two summits. One in Osaka called G20, where the president went to talk about trade and tariffs and ended up on the North Korean border. And the other one in Bahrain, where our delegation went to discuss a new approach to the Middle East peace process. So this is a follow-up on that story and it's very interesting. So stay tuned, I'll be right back.
1: Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming for world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMeer... Go to GoFundMe, look up The Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. Well, the president went to Osaka for the G20 meetings. And despite the jeers from the left, he actually managed to accomplish quite a bit. He had a series of face-to-face meetings with Russia's Vladimir Putin, China's Xi Jinping, Turkey's Erdogan, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, and quite unexpectedly, with North Korea's dictator, Kim Jong-un. And although expectations were that not much would come from the G20 meetings this year, particularly with regard to the trade battles that are going on, Donald Trump came away looking happy and very encouraged. So here's the wrap-up. The underlying concern of the meetings was the trade war between U.S. and China because it threatened to put the economies of the world at risk from a ripple effect. But there were other concerns as well, and the president's program was full of high-level meetings with other world leaders to address some of these. The meeting between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump was the first time that they met face-to-face since their controversial meeting in Helsinki two years ago. At that meeting, the press criticized Trump for being soft on Putin and not challenging him in public for Russia's interference in the U.S. presidential elections. The meeting this week could also have been problematical, but for other reasons. Because the U.S. has been in an increasingly tense situation with Iran, whom Russia has publicly supported. So it wasn't clear how this meeting was going to go but at least to the public. The two men appeared friendly and even jovial. Then they met for about an hour. The two leaders differ on many issues, not only the Russian interference in our elections and their siding with Iran regarding the latest tensions around the Strait of Hormuz, but also about the sale of weapons to Turkey and Russia's threat in the Ukraine. And then there's Russia's continuing involvement in Syria. So there were lots of issues. Still, the relationship between the two leaders seemed at least cordial, if not friendly. Trump also met with Turkish President Erdogan. After the meeting, when Trump was asked how it went, he said that the United States had a, quote, complicated situation with Turkey. The main issue in this meeting was Turkey's deal to buy from Russia its S-400 missile defense system in addition to buying America's Patriot missiles. But former President Barack Obama's administration had put conditions on Turkey's purchase of Patriot missiles, and they did not include buying a competing system from one of our potential enemies. Trump said that possible sanctions were discussed, but he also showed some sympathy for Erdogan because he said that he thought Obama had put him in a difficult situation. Erdogan told Trump that the proposed purchase was a problem. Meanwhile, back in Washington, sources said that if Turkey, which is a fellow NATO member, does not cancel the S-400 deal with Russia by July 31st, Ankara will not be able to buy the next generation F-35 fighters from the U.S. So instead, the U.S. has urged Turkey to buy the American-made Patriot missile system. You see, it's complicated. Remember, folks, Turkey is the Middle East. And if you remember the story of the scorpion and the camel, it doesn't have to make sense. And then came the big meeting, the one the world was waiting for, Trump and Xi Jinping. It took place on Saturday when President Trump and President Xi Jinping sat down together. It was all about trade war. And the outcome was a pleasant surprise. Although you couldn't tell that if you read the mainstream press, but never mind. After the meeting, Trump announced that the U.S. and China would resume trade talks and that the U.S. would delay imposing any new tariffs indefinitely. He also said that American companies would be able to resume sales with Huawei, the Chinese company that had been essentially blacklisted because of security concerns. Friends, this is really big stuff. According to President Trump this weekend, the meeting went better than expected. He described the meeting as excellent and said the U.S. and China were back on track. So mainstream media, take note. You're missing the boat and you're missing the story. China's official Xinhua News Agency didn't miss the story. They said the two leaders agreed to restart trade talks quote, on the basis of equality and mutual respect. Unquote. Trump had already put tariffs, as you recall, on $250 billion worth of Chinese imports this year, and these will stay in place. But he had also threatened to impose an additional $300 billion in tariffs if progress wasn't made in the negotiations. China retaliated with its own tariffs on American exports. It was just a bad situation all around. And the press didn't give him any charity. Still, with China's economy weakening every day and America's economy growing stronger, the time was right for China to come back to the table and try again. And they did. Xi said, quote, cooperation and dialogue are better than friction and confrontation, unquote. Can't argue with that. So Trump had two full days of meetings in Japan and then moved on to South Korea to meet with President Moon. But one of the most important meetings wasn't on the schedule. In an early Saturday morning tweet, Trump offered to meet North Korea's Kim Jong-un at the demilitarized zone, the DMZ, on Sunday. He wrote, quote, I will be leaving Japan for South Korea with President Moon. If Chairman Kim of North Korea sees this, I would meet him at the border, the DMZ, just to shake his hand and say, Hello. Kim responded positively, and Trump went to the DMZ where the two men shook hands. While they were together there, Kim said, I believe that meeting here, which is a symbol of division in a hostile past, I think meeting here two countries that have a hostile past, we are now showcasing to the world that we have a new present and we have a positive meeting going forward. Unquote. Then Trump walked across the line and took 20 steps into North Korea. He made history as the first sitting U.S. President to set foot in North Korea. Then he and Kim held a private meeting at the DMC for just under an hour. The moment was historic and ended with a promise to restart the staff-level talks that had broken off when Trump abruptly left their last summit in February. Trump said that negotiating teams would begin meeting in a matter of weeks and that the U.S. team will be led by the current U.S. special representative for North Korea. Trump also invited Kim to the White House, although he warned that such a visit would probably not come anytime soon. So, all in all, the G20 was a successful meeting for the U.S. president. Trump got a lot done and moved the U.S. forward on every front. Still, his detractors, of course, didn't like any of it, but in particular, they didn't like his meeting with Kim Jong un. Elizabeth Warren tweeted, Quote, our president shouldn't be squandering American influence on photo ops and exchanging love letters with the ruthless dictator. Instead, we should be dealing with North Korea through principled diplomacy that promotes U.S. security, defends our allies, and upholds human rights. Unquote. Well, Elizabeth Warren, that worked pretty well over the last decades when we accomplished what? Oh, Nothing. Amy Klobuchar said that achieving denuclearization is not as easy as just going and, you know, bringing a hot dish over the fence to the dictator next door, unquote. Cute, but uninspired. Bernie Sanders said he had no problem with Trump meeting with Kim. But he found the G20 venue an easy target for criticizing Trump's incredible inconsistencies, unquote. A spokesman for Joe Biden said that President Trump's coddling of dictators at the expense of America's national security and interests is one of the most dangerous ways he's diminishing us on the world stage and subverting our values as a nation. He accused Trump of fawning over Kim Jong-un and of making concessions for negligible gains. He said his conduct reinforces that we urgently need a president who can restore our standing in the world, heal relationships with key allies that Trump has alienated, and deliver real change for the American people, Really? That's funny. I thought that that's exactly what the president did in Osaka. And in my mind, he did it extremely well. Sorry, Joe, you'll have to do better. And finally, Senator Kamala Harris tweeted... This president should take the North Korean nuclear threat and its crimes against humanity seriously. This is not a photo op. Our security and our values are at stake. Unquote. So it, it seems that the Democrats who are running for his seat in the Oval Office are really confused. They can't seem to figure out whether the president is a rabid warmonger ready to start a war with Iran at the drop of a hat, or whether he's an appeaser of lunatic tyrants like Kim or Putin. In fact, they really couldn't find anything new or different to say, but they all felt compelled to say something. This speaks, my friends, to the poverty of the Democrat platform, that when real accomplishments are made, it is nevertheless impossible for Democrats to recognize it because they are made by Trump. That is a sad commentary on our society and on what it has become. If you were listening to last week's show, you may remember that I talked about the new Trump Middle East peace proposal and the U.S.-sponsored Peace to Prosperity workshop in Bahrain. It was really quite extraordinary because Israel has been the state equivalent of a persona non grata for so many years that a meeting in an Arab country in which Israelis were welcome is nothing less than extraordinary. It wasn't that long ago in previous discussions of peace between the Arabs and the Israelis that the Arabs refused to sit in the same room with the Israelis. The Israelis had to sit in another room. And this was before the days of personal computers and telecommunications, so their negotiating positions had to be relayed from one to the other by a runner who went back and forth between the rooms to transmit the positions of one side to the other. It was cumbersome, and it never really worked. So when last week Israeli businessmen were welcomed to the Bahrain conference and attended, it was a big deal. So big a deal, in fact, that it put the Palestinian businessmen who also attended in fear for their lives when they returned home. Late Friday night in the city of Hebron, which is located near Bethlehem and just 20 miles south of Jerusalem, it was the scene of a rapidly unfolding police drama as the police authority security services were deployed to arrest several of the businessmen who participated in the U.S.-sponsored workshop. They had been branded by their own government as collaborators and traitors, and they were targeted because they had attended the peace meeting in Bahrain. That night, the police surrounded a group of houses in order to tighten the net and arrest the delegation's members. One of them was arrested on the spot before he could escape. Among the officers who arrested him were some of his own relatives, who are senior Fatah members. Another delegation member saw the security forces coming and hid in the house next door from where he called TPS, an international Israeli news agency, and he asked them for help. He told them, I fear for my life and I'm in big trouble. They're here and will get me any minute and I need help. The PA forces told his family that he is a spy and a traitor and could be sentenced to death. They demanded that the father turn over his son. Otherwise, they said, the son will be killed by a mob in the street. The PA had been inciting the population against these men for several days. They had even circulated a public notice condemning the members of the delegation. That's the PA, the Palestinian Authority, the government of the Palestinian people on the West Bank. In the meantime, the delegation members contacted the U.S. Embassy to tell them that the Palestinian police were hunting for them, and they were finally able to contact a Marine officer in the embassy who promised to help. The man who was arrested on Friday night was released on Saturday night after high-ranking officials in the U.S. administration intervened. Jason Greenblatt, special representative for international negotiations for the president, stated that the U.S. is pleased to that the Palestinian Authority has released the Palestinians they arrested after attending the Peace to Prosperity workshop. He went on to say, quote, we look forward to continuing our conversation with all who attended the workshop and anyone else who wants a better future for Palestinians, After the dust had cleared a bit, delegation members said that the Americans had kept their word to protect them. Just as I was wrapping up today's show, a breaking news bulletin came across my desk. It reported that Vice President Mike Pence had called off an appearance in New Hampshire and was on his way back to the White House to attend an urgent conference with President Donald Trump. Although the cause of the urgent call was not given, Debka Files, an Israeli intelligence site, reported that a U.S. submarine, had intercepted a Russian nuclear submarine in American waters off the coast of Alaska, and that the Russian sub that was escorting it had responded to the U.S. interception with a strike from a Balkan 2000 torpedo that scuttled the U.S. sub. The loss of the U.S. submarine has not yet been reported by the Navy. There was no word of casualties on the U.S. submarine. In the meantime, urgent consultations in both the White House and the Kremlin were taking place on Tuesday night. Fox News also reported that at least 14 Russian sailors have died after a Russian submarine caught fire during what they called a research mission. It was reported that the sailors died from inhaling toxic fumes from the fire. It isn't clear what the connection is between the two reports, or if there is a connection at all, or if they are actually reporting the same incident. But I will follow this closely, and I will post my analysis on the America Out Loud website within the next few days. This is what keeps me awake at night, my friends. The world continues to be the most fascinating place, and things never stop happening. Well, we're going to take another short break, and when I come back, I want to tell you about some of the things that are happening as a result of the growing animosity between the left and the right. It's very disturbing, and it needs to see the light of day. But we'll also talk about a new and very exciting archaeological find in Israel that tells us a little bit more than we knew before about the history of Jerusalem just before the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D.
1: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampappa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code loud for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958.
0: You know, over the past few weeks, I've been talking about some of the crass, ruthless, and even cruel things that people on the left are willing to do to humiliate and embarrass those who disagree with them, specifically people with conservative opinions. I've talked about Congressman Maxine Waters who is frankly an embarrassment both to Congress and to the country she is supposed to be serving, when she calls for her supporters to harass and attack anyone who supports the president. And I've talked about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar who spouts her disgusting anti-Semitism against her Jewish colleagues in Congress from her seat in Congress. And I've spoken about Ocasio-Cortez, who compares detention centers on our southern border to Nazi concentration camps. They and their far-left colleagues are a true embarrassment to the country. But I heard something new this morning, and it frankly makes me sick. The newest form of harassment coming from the left and targeting those on the right seems to be something they called milkshaking. That is, I found out, exactly what it sounds like throwing a milkshake on the body of a conservative as a show of disagreement. Well, disrespect, really, or, more to the point, downright hatred. It started in England, and Nigel Farage was an early unhappy recipient of a milkshake attack in May. Farage is a conservative politician. That's conservative with a small c because Britain has a conservative party and he's not in it. Farage is one of the leaders of the Brexit movement there, the movement to promote Britain leaving the European Union. And there is opposition against his point of view. But really, there is plenty of room for disagreement on this subject and no reason for animus. Nevertheless, this has become a new form of resistance. So milkshaking has now become a verb and has made its way to the U.S., where the mix has gotten significantly more potent. This past weekend, Antifa hooligans clashed with a group of protesters from the group Proud Boys and threw milkshakes laced with raw eggs, pepper spray, and quick-drying cement. One thing led to another, and before this confrontation was over, a conservative reporter who was simply covering the demonstration ended up in the hospital at the hands of the Antifa thugs. You know, when I was a kid, we used to say that your freedom ends where my nose begins. And that's still true. If someone throws a drink at you, that is actionable under the law. It is an attack. And those who attack others in this way should be prosecuted. There needs to be accountability for these actions because these actions are a kind of violence and they lead to much more dangerous attacks if they're allowed to go unpunished. And that's because the growing toxicity and violence of the left is becoming pathological and dangerous. The left seems to feel that there are no rules when it comes to expressing the hatred they feel against President Trump and the people who support him. And because they've justified this to themselves, they're now attacking the First Amendment and the free speech that is supposed to be protected under it. The left has decided that public accommodations are not for everyone, that restaurants can bar someone because of his political leanings, and that publicly revealing the private information of individuals who are connected with and support the president, something now called doxing, That's okay, according to these lefties. Their Trump derangement syndrome has gone so far over the top that they no longer feel it necessary to abide by the fundamental guarantees of our Constitution. So when the woman proprietor of a small restaurant in Virginia asked Sarah Sanders, then the White House press secretary, to leave because of her political affiliations, her job with the White House, that was not okay. And now this woman, whose name I won't mention because every mention of her name gives her more notoriety, now she is saying, and she was specifically referencing a recent occurrence when Eric Trump was in a cocktail lounge where an employee spat at him, now she is saying that if people associated with Trump don't want to face this kind of anger, maybe they should consider eating at home, unquote. Really? How dare she? Sarah Sanders made a mistake when she refused to take legal action against her for refusing her service. She needs to be held accountable for violating the civil rights laws. Are you old enough to remember when black Americans were refused service at public restaurants? That was unacceptable then. And many laws have changed in the meantime to eliminate exactly that kind of treatment anywhere in the country. But now we're seeing it again, only it's political instead of racial. Well, I have a lot to say about it, I do not accept it. This is still America, and places of public accommodation are still covered by laws that require them to serve everyone, regardless of race, gender, or political affiliation. And that includes her. If she wants to run a restaurant, she has to open her doors to everybody, not just the people she likes. So her attitude is not only not okay, it is actionable, and she and everyone like her should be prosecuted when they break the laws regarding public accommodation and assault. As I have said many times before on this program, we have lost the art of civil discourse. We can't disagree with each other without risking physical violence, and that seems to be perfectly acceptable to the left. Isn't it strange that the political activists on the left who accuse the president of racism and of promoting hate, they are, in fact, the most vocal and violent spreaders of hate. They spread hate like candy, claiming free speech and the most virulent kind for themselves, but doing everything they can to deny free speech to the people that they disagree with, and yes, the people they hate. The left is slowly making an art form of hatred, and they're blaming it on the right. The growing violence coming from the left in both speech and action is a disturbing sign of what may be coming down the road toward us like a steamroller. If it is not somehow checked and turned around, it will lead inevitably, as I have said before, to something much closer to civil war. And that is something that will set America back a 100 years. And the cost will be unimaginable. Okay, how about a little good news, okay? Here's one story that hit the news here early Sunday morning, and it has a happy ending. It started with a Bulgarian charter flight going from Cologne, Germany, to Israel with 152 people on board and suddenly finding itself in a nightmare scenario. After the plane took off and was in the air, airport personnel in Cologne found pieces of shredded tire on the runway. One of the plane's tires had blown out during takeoff. How was the plane going to land? At the other end, Israel's Ben-Gurion Airport went into its highest emergency alert status. Since airline officials did not know which wheel was damaged or how much damage there was, the Israelis wanted to be prepared for every possibility. Over 100 ambulances, fire trucks, and emergency workers were called to the airport and lined up near the tarmac. Two Israeli F-16 jets escorted the plane to the airport, which was closed to all other traffic. Before attempting to land at Ben-Gurion, which is near Tel Aviv, the plane flew by the airport so that safety officials could look at the wheels from underneath before the plane landed. In the end, the pilot was able to bring the plane down and stop using its engines instead of its brakes. And the plane landed safely and without incident. A civil aviation expert later explained that blown airplane tires are actually fairly common, but that the airport had acted with an abundance of caution. Still, the story has a happy ending, That's a good thing. Now, if I were giving out awards for stupid, I would nominate Nike this week. They just came out with a new Air Max 1 Quick Strike 4th of July sneaker with a flag on its heel. The flag that is known as the Betsy Ross flag because it has 13 stars in a circle representing the original 13 colonies. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Particularly in time for the 4th of July. But wait, in comes Colin Kaepernick, the NFL football player who disrespected our flag and our national anthem when he took a knee during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner before the game. So how does he fit into this story? Well, he told Nike he didn't like the flag because it made him And others, he said, think of how it was linked to a period of slavery. What? How does the Betsy Ross flag make him think of slavery? Of course, the American Revolution was a period of slavery in our country. Slavery existed in this country before it was a nation, and until we had the courage to recognize that the ownership of one man by another was immoral and cruel. Is he saying that any period between the beginning of the creation of the 13 colonies in the 17th century and the end of the Civil War in 1865 are parts of history that we need to forget, turn our backs on? Betsy Ross wasn't a slave owner. How did she get involved in this discussion? And slavery? As terrible as it was, it was a fact of life in America during those years. Are we going to forget that, or are we going to learn from it so we don't make those mistakes again? Learning from history is a common theme on this show, maybe because so many people today are so eager to forget the bad times in our histories, the things we did wrong, and keep our children ignorant of them. But how will our children and our grandchildren be able to avoid the mistakes that we and our parents and our grandparents made if they don't know what the mistakes were or the consequences. And speaking of history, an extraordinary archaeological discovery was made in Israel, and just this past week, it was revealed to the public. It's a tunnel in Jerusalem that leads from the city of David to the site where the holy temple, the first temple and the second temple, used to exist. The ancient city of David is thought to be the place where most of the chapters of the Old Testament were committed to parchment from oral tradition. Today, it is a major archaeological site located on the eastern slope just outside the old walled city of Jerusalem. It is actually the original city, founded by King David, Yep, the one from the Bible. From this spot, the rest of the city grew and developed throughout history. The temple was built on top of the mountain above the city of David by his son, King Solomon. And over time, the city grew around the temple and around the mountain on which it stood. Archaeological finds throughout the area provide testimony to the ancient life of this city Whose connection to the Old Testament is undisputed by scholars. In fact, the excavations and the artifacts discovered in the city of David are among the earliest ancient findings discovered in Israel, and their link to the Jewish people is also undisputed. The pilgrimage road, as it is called, was used by Jews at least 3,000 years ago as they brought their sacrifices to the temple. Originally, this 380-yard-long tunnel was an open road, but the dust and dirt of 3,000 years accumulated over it and buried it, and it took six years of archaeological excavation to expose the original road, which is now a tunnel. In addition to the street itself, buildings were discovered that lined the street. Many artifacts were also uncovered there, And these told archaeologists that a wealthy population once lived there. They didn't know that before. In fact, the residents of the place that Josephus called Lower Jerusalem, that we now call the City of David, were, during the Second Temple period, quite affluent. The most significant discoveries that contributed to this understanding were publicly shown for the first time during the inaugural events. These included broken parts of an ornate stone table and a round table made of bitumen stone and decorated with colored stones. Silver coins were also found nearby, including silver coins that were minted in the city of Tyre, which is now in Lebanon, and dated back to 33 AD. From the ruins found under the layer of 2,000-year-old ashes, which date back to the time of Jerusalem's destruction, Valuable information has been acquired about the city's history, history that was previously unknown, about the city of Jerusalem itself and its Jewish inhabitants during the Second Temple period, and up to the moment when the Romans destroyed it. This week, the tunnel was officially opened for the first time, and the ceremony was attended by the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, and U.S. Special Envoy to the Middle East, Jason Greenblatt. Now, of course, this is the Middle East, so the festive event was clouded by complaints from the Palestinians who demanded that these excavations must stop immediately and that there must be accountability from the Israelis for, quote, Judaizing, unquote, Jerusalem. With the collusion of the United Nations, Palestinian leaders considered the city of Jerusalem occupied. They deny any Jewish claim to its history and call the archaeological excavations illegal. And they accuse Israel of promoting such archaeological digs for what they call, quote, racist colonial interests, unquote. The 2,000-year-old Pilgrim's Road passes underneath homes in the far newer eastern Jerusalem neighborhood of Silwan, which was built on top of it. The archaeological activities have angered the Palestinian Arabs who live there because they view eastern Jerusalem as their capital. While I understand that the people who have lived in Silwan, some for generations, might be upset by the digging under their village, the bigger issue is that the Palestinian Authority, which denies Jewish history and the Jewish claim to the land that goes back several thousand years, The Palestinian Authority does not want Jewish history in Israel to be further revealed because it goes against their entire narrative. There is no such thing in this world of a story with no end. Taking the long view of world history, everything comes to an end of one kind or another at some point. But this story has been going on for a long time, and the end is not yet in sight. This is, as I have said before, the Middle East. Well, that's the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for sharing your day with me. And if you would like to share your opinion as well, or comment on anything I talked about today, please send an email to me at ilana at com. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Ilana Friedman, and this has been The Freedman Report.